So last week we started this four-part look at what freedom in Christ really entails, at what freedom in Christ really means. You know, freedom is this word, as we talked about last week, freedom is this word that we can throw around a lot. It's come to the point, at least in our country, that we use freedom to sell everything from pickup trucks to vacations to drugs. But, but freedom is more than the marketing tool we have reduced it to. And that freedom in, in Christ is, is larger still. And so last week we were in Romans 6, and, and we sort of looked at what freedom isn't. And we saw that, that freedom, freedom isn't the ability to just do whatever we want. That freedom isn't the ability to just sort of live a, a libertine lifestyle. That's not what freedom in Christ means. You know, Paul starts in Romans 6 with this, with this assumption that some people have where they say, well, I can just continue to sin and sin all the greater so that grace may abound. And Paul very quickly nips that in the bud. Freedom is not a totally unrestrained free-for-all. In fact, freedom in Christ comes for us when we actually submit to Christ. Now, submission is a word that we don't like very much, do we? Because when we submit, we, we say that we're giving up some of our, some of our autonomy, some of our independence. We don't like this word, submission. But freedom in Christ comes when we submit to Christ in all things. And that it's through that submission and through the, 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 the barriers and the, and the boundaries that life in Christ erects for us that within that we can experience true freedom in Christ. We talk about some of the things that, that we do because we think we're free actually have enslaved us. Many of you probably know people who that applies to, don't you? You know people who think that they're free, and yet they're a slave to their sin. They think they're free, but they're a, a slave to their passion. They think they're free, but they're a slave to their addiction. That's not freedom. Unlike what Big Brother would have you believe in 1984, freedom isn't slavery. And so we, we looked at that submission to Christ. Now this week we're going to do something that maybe strikes you as a little odd. We're going to back up a chapter... And we're actually going to be at the beginning of Romans 5 this morning. We're going to be in actually in just the first five verses of Romans 5. And we're going to begin to, to look and examine, okay, so if, if freedom in Christ requires us to submit, what does this begin to look like? What does is, what is freedom in Christ look like? What, is, what actually is it and, and, and what does it give us? 
So we are in Romans chapter 5, starting with the first verse. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear God, as we, as we approach your Word this morning, God, I would pray that, that your peace would be made manifest in us, that your hope would show up, that your sphere of grace would surround us, that we could experience this morning what freedom in you is. And so God, as we, as we turn to your word and as we seek to study it and to learn it and to, to mine it, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. Romans is one of these books that lots of preachers have spent lots of time in. There was a preacher in uh, London in the mid-20th century named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an interesting man. He was a Welchman who was actually a medical doctor who then responded to a call to preach, and, and he, he preached at an independent church in London, meaning not part of the Church of England. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, over the course of his career, preached verse by verse through the entire book of Romans. It took him almost 20 years. Now, it wasn't every Sunday. And out of that, he produced, they've produced a, a sort of commentary set on Romans that is his sermons, basically, on Romans. And it is about 10 or 11 volumes, I think. Maybe actually more than that. Romans is this book that is just absolutely rich. We, we didn't talk much last week when we were in Romans 6. We didn't talk much about the book of Romans. But let's, let's take a moment this morning to sort of unpack a little bit about what Paul is doing here. Why Paul is writing this letter. Many of Paul's letters that we have in the New Testament are letters that Paul is writing to churches that he helped establish that he helped plant. Paul was, was one of the most prolific church planters in the history of the church. He, everywhere he went, he planted a church. And so he planted churches in Corinth, and he planted churches in Ephesus, and he planted churches um, through the region of Galatia, and all of these places. And so many of those letters that we have in the New Testament from Paul, the letter to the Corinthians, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Galatians, are letters that Paul is writing to churches that he established. 
But Paul didn't establish the church in Rome. In fact, as you read the book of Romans, you see that Paul's actually never been to Rome. He doesn't know these folks. But they've reached out to him because they're having a conflict within the church. And so by reputation, they know Paul. They know who he is. They know his apostolic voice. And so they write to him and say, help us figure this out. It might be sort of like if, if Fairmont First Baptist wrote to, wrote to a pastor that had never been here to help you figure out a, a problem. Now, the problem in the Church of Rome was rooted in the fact that Nero had expelled the Jews from Rome. So you remember there's, there's the fire in Rome, right? And we all, we all know this story, right, that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Okay, probably not actually true. But Nero needed a scapegoat. And so he scapegoated the Jewish community in Rome. He said it was the Jews. The Jews did it. And so he expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Now, that meant not only Jews who were still practicing the faith pre-Christ, but it also meant those Jews who would become believers in Christ. Jewish Christians. So they were expelled too. And so they were out. And then so what was left in the church in Rome was the Gentile believers. And the Jews, the Jewish members of the church and the Gentile members of the church are separated for many years. And then eventually they come back together. Now, if you've ever, if you've ever been separated from somebody for an extended period of time, y'all begin to, maybe you start in the same place, but the more time you spend away from each other, right, you begin to think about things maybe a little differently. You're not having that interaction. You're not staying of one mind. And that's what had happened. And so the Jewish believers came back in to Rome and, and, and the Gentile believers were there. And it comes to the point that they have developed a conflict about what the gospel is. They've developed conflict about the rule and the role of the law in the life of the Christ follower. And so that's sort of the core conflict that they're writing to Paul. And so Paul understands that what he has to do is he has to start at the very beginning and get the whole church on the same page. And so when you start in Romans 1, Paul is starting at the beginning. People are sinners. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody's got a problem. And through the course of Romans, Paul builds an argument and builds a presentation of the gospel. So it's one of the reasons that Romans is such a rich book for us. Because it's, it's sort of the first systematic biblical theology that we have. Where Paul sits and from the beginning defines and lays out the faith in a very systematic way. So what's happened when we come to verse 5, when we come to chapter 5, excuse me, that first verse of chapter 5, we have a word that starts that verse. What's the word? The word is therefore. If you've got your Bibles out, if you've still got your Bibles open, circle that word therefore. 
Therefore, we've talked about these sorts of words before. Therefore is one of those words that when we see it, we need to pay attention to it. Because, because Paul's saying, all of that stuff I told you before, that has an impact on what I'm about to tell you. So when you see words like therefore or but, pay attention to those words. Maybe as you're doing your Bible study, circle those words so that you can see them. And so what Paul is saying is that, that all of these things that, we, that have happened before is going to, 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 to play a role in what we have here. Therefore, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, See, this is, this is a summary. This is a summary of the argument that Paul has been building in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. He's laid out the need. He's laid out our unrighteousness, our need to be declared righteous, and the fact that we are declared righteous by faith. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith. Those that have placed their trust in Jesus can be assured that their faith has been credited to them as righteousness and their confidence based on the truth that Christ died for their sins and rose again so that they could be declared just. If we, if we move back just the last two verses of chapter 4, and this often helps when you see a word like therefore, go back just a verse or two to help you figure out what's Coming, so we're going to move back. We're going to move back. Actually, we're going to we're going to sort of skip the first four words of chapter four. This is one of those places where I would not have put the verse marker where I put it, where they put it. I would put it four words later. It will be credited to us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So what's, what's Paul saying here? It will be credited to us who believe in him, who believe in him who? Him who raised Jesus. Who raised Jesus? The Father raised Jesus. Those of us who believe in the Father will be credited for it. Because Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins, for our shortcomings, for our failures, for all of the ways in which we have sinned against God. Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. That's one of those, man, that's one of those like, that's not a 25 cent word, that's like a 50 cent word. Like that is that is a Jack Kennedy fifty cent piece word. Justification. What justification means is the the our being made right to God. We are justified. It's it's about our it's about our salvation. It's about it's about the penalties of our sins being paid by Christ, made right and even with God, and so we are justified to God. So we've been credited because we believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, and because Jesus was delivered up for our sins, 
died for our sins and rose for our justification. And now we come, therefore, we've been declared righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of this, because we have been justified, because we have been credited, because Christ rose again, because Christ died on the cross for our sins, because of that we can have peace. And it's only because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the justification that comes with it that we're able to have peace. Without That peace, we are stuck in that cycle of trying to find peace in other things. Maybe you've experienced that that struggle and that cycle. See, See, we're made... We're made to be in relationship with God. And when that relationship is broken through our sin, we we try all of these other things to make it right. We struggle to fix the thing that's broken and missing in our lives. We struggle to find that peace. But we can't find it apart from Jesus. It doesn't matter how many zeros you get in your bank account. It doesn't matter how many letters come after your name because you have fancy degrees. It doesn't matter how many friends you have, how many kids you have, how big your house is, how fast your boat is, how many points We're on that buck that you got last fall. None of those things will give you peace. If you've ever been in a place in life where you were struggling to find that peace, and you struggled and you strove to to fill it in that hole and to find that peace in all of these things, you know what I'm talking about. That there is no peace and there is no rest in those things. At one point in my life, a number of years ago, I was, I was privileged to spend a year living in the house that my dad grew up in. I was in a transition in my life. I didn't really know what was going on. And so I moved back home and mom and dad decided that having their 20 plus year old son living with them was not a sustainable solution. And so I moved into the house that my dad had grown up in. After my grandparents had died, my parents had kept it. It was on Choctahatchee Bay in Fort Walton Beach. And I spent a lot of time at that house growing up. It's where I learned to swim. It's where I learned to sail. It's where I failed repeatedly to learn how to water ski. So here I am. I am a man in my mid to late 20s. Semi-decent job. Living in a house on the water in one of, if not the most beautiful places in the world. There are a lot of people 
who would have looked at my life and said, man, you had it made. For a year, my life was a Jimmy Buffett song on repeat. And let me tell you, as someone who grew up on the Gulf Coast, that's a, that, was, that was the life, man. That was what I wanted, right? But there was no, there was no peace. There was no, there was no rest. In fact, there was a, a fair amount of turmoil and conflict, both in myself and with other people. Because even though, even though I knew Christ, even though I was a believer, even though I was regularly attending church, I still was trying to find my peace something else. Living on the water, waking up every day to that view, that would give me peace, right? It didn't. You know, we, we do that. We try and find peace. Sometimes we try and find peace in other people. If I can just have a healthy relationship, if I can just find the right girl or the right guy, if I could just get married, or maybe if I could just get my spouse to, to love me a little better, I'll have peace. Or, 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 or maybe it's just, if I just work hard enough, I can achieve peace. I don't know if you've ever known anyone who, who grew up desperately poor. But there's a thing that happens sometimes with those folks where enough is never enough. Because they're always scared that whatever they have will disappear. And so they keep struggling to find peace through work and through money and through a bigger and bigger bank account. There's a, there's a phrase that's come up over the last few years that we, we use more and more when we're talking about addiction for, with folks. And we talk about this term self-medication. That oftentimes underlying addiction is some other sort of, of health or mental health issue. And so the addict is self-medicating. They're, they're struggling. They're striving. They're seeking peace at the bottom of a whiskey bottle, or at the end of a needle. But if you've ever known an addict or ever had an addict in your life, you know there's no peace in addiction. There's no freedom in addiction. It's just slavery. One of the ways I think that this is showing up most perniciously in our culture right now. And, and maybe it's not for you, and I understand that. I'm looking out here, and with the, a possible exception of a person or two, I'm guessing that we don't have a whole lot of uh, Instagram mavens out here. But one of the ways this is showing up, particularly in the lives of our young people, is in social media. This, this hunt for the next... For the next like, for the next follow, for the next comment. Push the algorithm just a little higher. I need another view. I, you know, my last 
video on TikTok, I said I had 500 views, and so the next one I need to get 600 views. Because, because if, 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 I, if I can present an image of myself that's pleasing enough to enough people, I'll get this affirmation and I'll have peace. Now again, I am looking out here and I recognize that this probably does not apply to very many of you. But it applies to your kids. And it applies to your grandkids. They're seeking and searching and desiring peace. And they're looking for it in all of the wrong places. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we move into verse 2, we see this. We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. We are standing. If you are a believer... If you have been justified by faith, you are standing in grace. Grace is one of those words, kind of like justification, that's sort of a churchy word, that maybe if you didn't grow up in the church, or even if you did grow up in the church, you don't really know what it's about. You might have some idea, you know, it's got something to do with God and salvation, but it's one of those words that we can use and not think about. So what grace normally means is grace normally means God's free and unmerited favor. His undeserved and unconditional love. So grace is something that is given to us not because we have done anything to purchase grace. It's given to us freely. It's it's given to us not because we've done anything good because we're such a great person and we have enough stars next to our name it's given to us without regard to our merit for it it's also comes to us unconditionally and this is something I think that in our, in our hunt for meaning, in our hunt for peace, that we can have a hard time with. Believing that unconditional love is a thing and that we can receive it. I have a lot of friends who are my age-ish. So we're talking millennials. Folks in their mid to late 20s into their mid to late 30s. And the number one stumbling block that I would identify among at least the people that I know, the number one stumbling block to the gospel is the idea of unconditional love. They simply cannot believe that something that is good as I say God's love is could come to them for free. That it could come to them unconditionally. That there aren't any strings attached to it. They believe that they have to perform for it. That they have to earn it. You know, we can, we can talk all day long about all of the things in our culture that make it hard for people to understand and accept the gospel. 
But over and over and over again in the gospel conversations I have with my friends who do not know Jesus, the thing that it keeps coming back to is I simply can't believe that God would give me anything for free. Paul identifies it as a stumbling block, as foolishness in 1 Corinthians. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is powerful. And God's grace does not make sense to the world. But here, when, when Paul says we're standing in grace, Paul's using grace, he, he means that, but he also means something else here. We almost could read here that, that we're standing in the sphere of grace. That our privileged position of acceptance by Him, where we're standing there because of God's grace. Have you all ever seen um, a, a, like a science fiction movie where there's a force field? I, I'm, reminded, I'm reminded of... Um, in uh, Star Wars Episode One, when they're on Naboo and the Gungans come out and they have like the force field and the battle droids and okay, I've lost like ninety percent of you at this point. But there's this idea, right? Like like a force field, this 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 sphere that goes around us that surrounds somebody that that protects them. And one of the things that you'll often see in, you know, in a science fiction movie or a science fiction show or whatever is, is they need to protect something that's outside the force field. And so, and so they find a way to extend the force field around that other object to, to protect it and to bring it inside the circle, the sphere of protection. We, we're standing in the sphere of God's grace because He has extended that sphere around us. It's not because we've gotten so close to Him that we're within the sphere. It's because we're standing here where we are. We stand dead in our sin. And God extends His sphere of grace around us. Nothing we can do of our own volition will place us inside that sphere. Only God's mercy and God's grace can extend it around us. And so, we stand in this grace. We stand in this grace. And because of this, we don't have this periodic approach to God, an occasional audience with the King. No, because we stand in God's grace, because we, that sphere has been extended around us, we, we, it's as if we live in the temple. As if we live in the palace. Our relationship with God is not sporadic, but continuous. Not precarious, but secure. If you ever think that our politics are dysfunctional, I would encourage you to read about the court of Henry VIII. Man, that guy liked killing people. And not just his wives. The court of Henry VIII was this constant tumult of different courtiers seeking advantage in a relationship with the king. 
And there are people, I think, who think that that's what our relationship with God is like. That we have to constantly be jockeying for position so that we can sit a little closer to the throne. Even the disciples talked about that, right? They had an argument about who would be sitting at the right hand of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. But we don't have to jockey for position. We're not going to fall in and out of grace with the king the way a courtier in Henry VIII's court could fall in or out of favor with him. No, we stand in the sphere of grace because that is the nature of grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. A little later in Romans, Paul's going to write these words. You know them. From the 8th chapter, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even our own stupidity. Because guess what? You are a created thing. And no other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We stand in the sphere of grace. And as we stand in the sphere of grace, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of our Lord. Hope, I think sometimes we think about hope and we think about hope as the same thing as optimism. There's some uncertainty to it, right? Well, I hope the weather's going to be nice today. I hope the Saints have a winning season this year. I hope I don't get a cold this week. There's a certain amount of uncertainty in each one of those things, isn't there? But, but, But hope that we have as Christians in Christ is, is secure. It's not uncertain. It's joyful and confident. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of our Lord. We, we rejoice in hope. What's the object of this hope? The object of this hope is the glory of God. Namely, His radiant splendor which will in the fullness of time and at the end of all things at the second coming be on full display for all to see. God's glory is revealed in the heavens and the earth. It's revealed in in the rain, in the showers. It's revealed to us when the sun comes up, when the corn grows God's glory was also uniquely revealed and made manifest in Jesus Christ, in the God incarnate, in the, in the Word made flesh. But even, even that, even Christ's advent is, is a glimpse, is a pale shadow of what one day we will see when we no longer look through a glass darkly, but when we see God face to face. And what we know is that Jesus will appear in great power and great glory and the heavens and earth will be made new and the whole universe renewed. 
The glory of God is not just the object of our hope, but it's why we're here. It's, it's our purpose. We are made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. When you sit down and you have that fried chicken, are you eating fried chicken to the glory of God? When you... When you come in from mowing the grass and it's hot and you are so thirsty and you get that ice cold glass of water and you drink that water and it quenches your physical thirst, are you drinking to the glory of God? When you are trying to traverse the Walmart parking lot, are you doing it to the glory of God? Everything that we do, we should be doing to the glory of God. It's why we're here. It's our purpose. It's our purpose as human beings. God created us to proclaim His glory. He created me, Carter McNeese, to proclaim His glory. He made you, Bruce Thompson, to proclaim His glory. He made you, Jessica Davis, to proclaim His glory. It's who He made us to be as, as people but it's also who He made us to be as a church. In everything we do as a church, do we glorify God? Are we standing as a church body? Are we standing in the sphere of grace, joyful in the hope that's rooted in God's glory? See, we're called to do everything to the glory of God, but we're only able to do it when we stand in God's grace, when that sphere of grace has been extended around us. You see, we rejoice not only in God's grace, but also in our sufferings. We don't like to suffer. We don't even like to be inconvenienced, do we? We've, we've become allergic to, to suffering, to inconvenience. You think we haven't become allergic to suffering or inconvenience? Let your air conditioner go out this week. It'll be the worst thing that ever happened to you, right? You know, there's a long tradition of suffering and then the embracing of suffering in the church. In fact, it was seen as such a central part of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus that when the persecutions of the Christians stopped, in the 4th and 5th century, Christians didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to be Christ followers without persecution. And so they gave up the red martyrdom of persecution for the white martyrdom of the monastery. We embrace our suffering but, you know, these days it seems as if the church, particularly the church, maybe here in the United States or in the West, is like the rest of the world. And we try to avoid suffering in all things. For goodness sakes, I know that if it's raining on a Sunday morning, attendance is going to be down. Because, well, you know, it's raining. We don't really have to go to church. I might get wet. I had my hair done this week, and I don't, I don't want it to get wet. 
In the summer, attendance is lower. Any suffering at all, we don't embrace and rejoice in it, but we complain about it and throw a temper tantrum. Why, why should we rejoice in our affliction? Why does is, why is Paul say that we should rejoice? Because God uses those afflictions for our good. Paul tells us that God uses affliction to produce endurance. Now, endurance is something that many of us are lacking. And I don't mean the ability to, you know, run a mile in under 30 minutes. I'm talking about endurance. Paul's talking about endurance of character. You know, the second that something doesn't work right away, we abandon it. Do any of you all know the story of Adoratum Judson? He was the first Baptist missionary. He was a missionary to, to, to Burma, what's now Myanmar. Judson went to Burma. He was in Burma for six years before he had his first convert. He was in Burma for six years before he had his first church service. I have a friend who was a church planter who was pulled from the mission field because his church plant didn't take off in less than two years. When we were in Ireland, we had a conversation with a Baptist church planter in Ireland. He said, you know, here... He was an American, but was planting a church in Ireland. He said, here the idea is totally different. Here they understand that church planting is a multi-generational effort. In the United States, if a church plant isn't totally self-sufficient, within two or three years, they get pulled. That's not endurance. But see, endurance, Paul tells us, produces proven character. What are you doing over and and who are you in the face of years of not getting it over the line? Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. Again, this isn't the shallow hope of optimism. It's a deep hope that's rooted in the blood of Christ. Blood that like God's love was poured out for us and poured into our hearts. And just like Faith, hope is only as good as its object. See, faith generally does not save us. It's faith in God that saves us. And hope will not disappoint us if it's rooted in the right thing because it's the hope of God's love. And so this this peace and this hope are true freedom that we find when we stand in grace. It's, it's freedom from condemnation under the law. It's freedom from sin, but it's also a freedom to hope. It's a freedom to rejoice. It's a freedom to experience peace. We're often bound up, right, with all that turmoil, all that conflict in our lives. But we can be free of that. We can be free of the turmoil, free of the conflict, free of the assumption that we have to prove ourselves to God, that we have to earn His love and His favor and His mercy. Because, man, we don't earn it. We can't earn it. This, this, is, this is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is we can't earn it. And we don't have to. 
The good news is we can't earn it, and so God gives it freely. God extends mercy to us in grace, unconditionally, unreservedly, unmerited, unearned. And we can, we can stand in that grace. We can stand in that protective force field of grace and rest and experience peace and hope and freedom. A freedom and a hope and a peace that allows us to once again pursue God's perfect design for us. To glorify Him in all things and to enjoy Him forever. I don't know if you need to experience that peace this morning. And I want to be very clear. I think that you can be a believer. I think you can have turned your life over to Jesus and not experience this peace. I know that from personal experience. But maybe this morning you want that peace. You want to ask for that peace for the first time. Or you want to, you want to recommit to stand in grace and experience that peace and that freedom. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to do anything for it except receive it. It's a gift. And it's better than any gift that you'll ever get on your birthday or under the Christmas tree or at a wedding shower. Because it's the gift of freedom. It's the gift of the freedom to allow you to be who it is that God has made you to be. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 294, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. And if this morning, if you